So, uh, hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Chatter. Uh, today I am delighted to be joined once again by Dr. Suzanne Trimbath, who is now entering a very exclusive club of people who have been on this show three times. So yeah, welcome yeah, back. Wow. Do I get a jacket when we've met, met um, when we've done it five times, like on Saturday Night Live? If you're the five, if you, once you host it five times, you get a green jacket. Do I get one of those? Oh, so. that's not that's not a bad idea, actually. Maybe I'll start yeah. doing that. Maybe I couldn't. Maybe not spring for like a leather jacket, but I could do like a mug or something. Yeah, like a mug, <laughs> sure, a, a chatter mug that says, you know, five time, uh, five time appearance. Or, yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, so the reason that you're back on the show is to talk about uh, the regulatory crisis that you've been been talking a lot about on Twitter and stuff. And um, yeah, so it's a disturbing situation that we've we've ended up in. Um, yeah. So I think probably the best place to start is if you just uh, maybe want to lay out like what is a regulatory crisis and why you think um, we have arrived in that in in america well you have arrived <laughs> we're well, on our own problems over here yeah 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 and so does the eu and so does everybody so um and we can talk about some of that too i'll, I'll include what i can uh it's a little harder now that uk broke from eu because now that's like a whole new set of rules to follow so uh so so what's a regulatory crisis most of the time if you just Google regulatory crisis, what you're going to find out is that they use that term when a company gets into trouble. Let's say that um, they have some legal challenges, regulatory challenges, maybe they've been, uh, uh, it, that threatens their reputation, their operations, their financial stability. Maybe there's some lawsuits, the SEC is investigating them. Someday. So a regulatory crisis for a company is a crisis when regulators right, are, at, are coming to the door. So I'm not using it that way. The way I want to use it is that this is a regulatory crisis that involves all of Wall Street and all of Washington, right? So it's this, um, uh, uh, the crisis is in, is built in, is in the regulations itself and the way people adhere to it. So I only found, when I started looking into this, I found one author, only one, in 2011. His name is... Um, um, uh, Pablo Triana. And in, and in 2011, he, he wrote a book called The Number That Killed Us, A Story of Modern Banking, Flawed Mathematics, and Big Financial Crisis. Right? So that, like, that just says it all, right? So he's, what he said was, here's, here's a quote, for the 2007 crisis was at its core a regulatory crisis, either because of enforcing conceptually flawed rules or neglectful policing of the rules. Bank regulators made it possible for the big banks to toxify their balance sheets with bad leverage. And that it kind of in a nutshell, right? So the, uh, so the structure that I use to um, make categories of crisis is from uh, this, uh, these uh, uh, Sanford Levinson and Jack Balkin who are at the University of Pennsylvania. And they published an article in 2009 called Constitutional Crisis. Right, where this is a word I think that a lot of people, especially recently in the US, <laughs> we've all been hearing about the constitutional crisis. So what do you do in a situation where, for example, in January 2021, um, the uh, new president is due to take office on January 21, I think it was 2021, 20th or 21st. I think it was the 20th. And the old president, yeah. what's it, right? And the old president decides not to leave. There's nothing in the constitution that says, here's what you do, right? And so if, so if we're following the rule of law and the constitution being the basis for most of those laws, if you follow any of this uh, U.S. Um, uh, court battles, they all come down to, uh, you know, uh, you violated my constitutional right to freedom of the press, freedom of speech, whatever it is, like the, art, art, the first 10 amendments were all the Bill of Rights. So in that structure, what you have is what they define were three levels. So at its core, let's say, let's say, let me put it to you this way. What do you think is the central purpose of regulations, financial regulations? Like, what do you think is it like at its heart? What do you think they do? Um, I would say they're there to 
or govern the way in which all financial institutions should conduct themselves. Right. So, so they make possible financial transactions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, so they're they're they... it makes it possible to have financial transactions because everyone has this set of rules that they follow. I um I did I did an article once on how laws are formed, like how you can't just take like you can't take the U.S. financial regulatory system and transplant it whole on mass, right? And just say here, uh, you know, Russia, do it this way or here, Poland, or here, whatever, like, which in the 80s, we did a lot of that, the 80s and 90s, where we would just sort of take whole cloth, the system that we have, the self-regulatory system that we have, and try to just implant it you know, in these other countries. It never works, and for reasons that we could go into. But so in the context of the financial system, and the way that I want to use the phrase regulatory crisis, it's a, it's a, point where financial transactions are no longer possible, right? So this self-regulatory structure we have actually threatened, is threatened to fail at the very task that we've given it, which is that they make possible financial transactions. So I look at it, if you look at, as an example, uh, taking away the buy button in January of 2020, right? Or was it 2021? <laughs> 2021, no, 2021. Sorry, you make me think. Like question myself. Like we came out a year earlier, right? Yeah. So, so the so the so taking away the buy button means that a whole group of uh, household investors are unable to complete financial transactions. That's a turning point, right? That's a point where whatever system was in place of regulations broke, right? And, and it failed at its primary duty, which was to make those transactions possible. So there are different levels. And I, tr I would, I think that they're progressive, right? So, so there's, so there's a, a level one situation where, and we see this all the time, the SEC, the Washington and Wall Street are so, like uh, Garrett Gensler says this all the time. Well, I can only do what's in the laws. Right, what Congress permits me to do. I can't do anything else. So he's holding this fidelity, right? He's being so loyal to these rules the way that they've been written that he can't make any changes. And and the same thing with Wall Street. Well, the market maker exemption exists for a reason to liquidity. I think was the question you wanted to ask me about later. Yeah. Um, uh, so so in the name of liquidity, we can do anything that we want to do. Like we can take your money and give you nothing because it's all in the name of liquidity, which is so insane. It's so insane, it's absurd. Because liquidity means bringing in more buyers and sellers, not pretending like there's worse transactions, right? not pretending like, oh, I'll sell, you, I'll sell you as many of that as you want to buy, because I don't have to deliver them, I'm a market maker. So not even a market. So that's kind of level one, right? So then level two is where you feel that the, the regulators, Wall Street and Washington, Wall Street, feel that the circumstances they're in are so extraordinary, so unusual. We must make an exception for this particular purpose because this black swan event has never happened before, right? Think of um, <clears throat> from 2003 until 2007, 2008, Greg Show short selling. We have to make it possible. Short sellers are the saviors of the marketplace, you know, so all that language over and over again, that level one fidelity, it has to be, we have to protect it, it has to be uh, possible. Then the SEC decides that no one can short sell stocks of a bank. So this is a level two. Now we've written to another level of crisis here, where we're saying that uh, although last week we loved our laws and wouldn't change them or break them, we have, now we have to break them. And there's so many examples, especially in the 2008, uh, throughout the, the great financial crisis, the great recession that followed, all the things that Treasury, Federal Reserve did um, in connection with Wall Street, <laughs> you know, again, this Washington Wall Street thing. So so this is this, this is what I call a level two. Now we've come to another level where all the rules that the regulators felt so strongly and you know clung to for you know as their lifeboat all of a sudden oh 
but this one, we, we don't have to follow this one right now because things are so special and different. And then the next piece is that level three, right? Where what, what was just public discourse, disagreements about how the rules are, are written, how the rules are enforced, all of those things. All that goes by the wayside and the public just goes into an uprising. If you think of the um, 2008 Occupy movement, right? Uh, in Oakland, California, they, we got to the point where people are in the streets protesting for, you know, the in favor of the 99% against the 1%. That was, the, that was really the discussion surrounding the Occupy Wall Street movement. In Oakland, California, they were um, investigated by the FBI, Department of Justice, local police. There was actually a commission formed to investigate the activities of the Oakland police. And the findings in that report were that, in fact, they used military-style force against the protesters in that movement. Now, in the United States, <laughs> like uh, I've been around long enough to remember Kent State, to remember the 1964 Democratic uh, Convention, uh, where we know that our just say in general, police force, military, National Guard, local police, that they will shoot protesters. They do that here. We know they do that here. I know there's a lot of countries where they do and don't, but here they, it's not, it's not the first time that that sort of thing has happened. So, so this is level th three crisis, and let's just stick with those are all, those were political, you know, in the 60s, it was about race, it was about politics, it was about the Vietnam War. Here, let's just talk about the financial stuff. Um, in France, um, the the workers <laughs> rose up against the CEOs and bosses and held them hostage in their factories, demanding that they get their share of the output, right? And that was all again about um, that you know that whole thing was brought about by that whole all three pieces of that crisis were brought crisis or all three levels were brought about by this, um, these problems in the financial regulations. So that's a regulatory crisis. I am using it, as I said, I've only found one other author who, who uses it that way. I'm using it in a fairly unique way. Um, well, let's we'll just say a unique way if only one other person used it. Uh, and also I'm trying to add some structure to it so that, so that we can understand where we are. And in, in my view, we've, we've already done one, two, and we're into three now. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of scary. The point where, I, and like, honestly, I'm also not um, I'm not unfamiliar with uh, protesters being shot and leading to a breakdown of law and order where people don't realize because um, I don't know if you know in my home country um, in um, in yeah, the seventies, yeah, Northern Ireland. So in the seventies, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, the inner, I mean, that's exactly yeah. Sorry, if I'd forgotten that was your that was your background. Yeah. Bloody Sunday, like the U2 yeah. song, is because yeah. 14 unarmed protesters got shot in the back by British paratroopers. Exactly. Or, yeah, exactly. So, so that's the so that's a that's a you know there's a so that's a crisis right that has unfolded that far too often it just gets brushed aside into history, and we don't stop and say what exactly happened there that that the military decided to take up arms against the citizens, right? <clears throat> in Russia, just one more aside there, because it's not really, well, it's kind of financial, but um, when uh, Yeltsin, there was the uprising, and then they, they you know, Yeltsin became, became president, so the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of communism, et cetera. What happened there was that the military refused to take up arms to actually shoot the citizens. They refused because they said, no, these are my cousins and brothers and you know family members, and these are all the people that I know. I'm not going to take up arms against them. That doesn't happen very often, uh, but it can and does happen where the military simply says, I'm not going to do it. This is not, this is not the way to resolve this crisis. There has to be a better way than let's just you know, shoot the citizens. I mean, think about it, you know, just think about how absurd that is, that, that your own government takes up arms against you. And that was, of course, the basis for the Second Amendment to the Constitution in the U.S. was that 
we should be able to protect ourselves if the government comes after us for some reason. So yeah yeah and all those scenarios are worth worth remembering um i wanted to show you actually i'm not sure if you saw earlier this year um the the blackrock offices in paris were stormed by protesters after um, the french government um proposed to or actually no i think they went ahead with selling um a bunch of like the the pensions off to blackrock so i'm just gonna see if i can show oh yeah i haven't seen i don't remember seeing that do you remember what month that was? It was April, so here it is. Um, I don't know if this is gonna come up. Ah, yeah, here it is. Um, so, yeah, check this one out. Protesters are chanting, waving flags, carrying flares. Smoke is filling the building. It is the 11th day of nationwide demonstrations against the country's new pension bill. If you're unfamiliar, it raises the retirement age from 62 to 64. It has infuriated stagnated. They intend to continue their protest. So there was, um, and I don't actually, uh, as far as I understand um, what they have reported there um, in that video, it, they said in the video that it was because the retirement age was being raised. But my right. understanding of it was that people were not as much protesting the retirement age being raised as they were the state-owned pensions being sold off to uh to blackrock uh, blackrock and a okay. bunch of other financial institutions so yeah so there's 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 plenty of examples in history and in um, uh, 2023 and the, the daily news right yeah i follow i follow uh, uh france 24 so i'll go to their uh youtube and see if i can get some more details on that so but god bless the french i'm telling you of of all the you know the pitchfork moments that we have in the states people just like sort of yawn and go about their business or i'm too busy i have to take kids to soccer practice i have these first world problems to deal with i can't deal with crises um the french just like you know remember when the um the farmers put their trucks all around they ring the city with their trucks so no one could get in and out i mean they just they you know god bless them. they when it comes to protests i i don't know <laughs> i just don't know another country that's that I, of course, I don't know everything everybody does, but they really know how to throw a protest. Mm, yeah, the Dutch farmers had good ones as well. They were uh, spraying uh, manure at uh, politicians' houses. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which was hilarious as well. But yeah, be ungovernable, be like the French. Uh, <laughs> and you see, it wasn't about, um, it wasn't about, you know, here, like in the States, they think, oh, you know, if there's going to be a, an uprising, everyone's like, oh, bring out our guns, let's all run somewhere and start shooting people. It's like, there's lots of ways to get your message across and to make sh make darn sure that people is to, if you pull out a gun and shoot someone, it's over. Mm. They arrest you, the police move in, now they have, now they have every right to shoot back at you. But if you throw the door at someone's house because you're a farmer protesting some farm bill like this is this is a level of protest that like and the other thing about the that i noticed about the french in particular is that they keep it up for a long time right they won't leave the streets like the yellow jackets and the, now this you know so that they won't leave until they get the attention that they want um you know i just I it's not it about trying, you can't just you can't just try to solve the crisis with one protest right no. it has to be this um, I said something about it being ongoing and, syst and directed in the right place. And someone replied, um, I, I should give them credit, but I forgot who it was. It, it should be uh, persistent, insistent, and consistent. Mm. Right? So consistent, it has to be the same message. You have to get all the voices together um, around around this, this whatever this topic is. It has to be persistent, which is ongoing, is kind of what I said. And then it has to be insistent, meaning we're not leaving until this changes yeah 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 well i mean ultimately that's what um still embodies quite a lot of the people who uh, started buying shares at gamestop way back in um early 2021 because they are still yeah. not leaving um i don't know right. not I, leaving yeah. is there yeah that's their mantra yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um so like the, this this whole regulatory crisis that, that you're talking about in in the states where you, we've we've re, where you know a point has been reached I, I think we we have the same problem in in most of the developed world where 
um, regulatory capture, especially in the financial world, um, has has become like a. Rev it's not even that you know politicians are being incentivized to not look into things it's a revolving door between the re regulatory agency and the industry they're meant to regulate mm -hmm. and then in america it, it's even further where they're sort of in charge of regulating themselves which absolutely mm -hmm. blows my mind that that's that's accepted so like like the the place i think i want to start is is the sec so like how how like powerful or powerless are the SEC, because obviously there's these self-regulatory bodies, but like, what what amount of power do the SEC actually have to go in and attempt to try and do anything about this? Because I've been trying to gauge what people's opinions in the industry are on Gary Gensler and what he's been trying to do. <laughs> so, like, like, how do you it's like just, gauge? The his thing like Gensler that gets me is when he actually admitted in front of those students, and this is you know now immortalized on YouTube is that when he worked on Wall Street, he didn't know anything about back office operations and clearing and settlement. And now he's in charge of regulating that. So, you know, why not get someone who actually knows what the hell they're doing? I don't know. Um, so, uh, but that's just my personal view on Kensler. Uh, so how powerless or powerful are they? It is, the SEC, is offices are located like a 10 minute walk from the, from Capitol Hill. There's no reason why they couldn't go to Congress and say, look, like work with Congress and say, hey, look, like the rules we have aren't quite working. Things aren't kind of aren't like, like we, we need to be able to do this and we don't have the power for it because that's another thing we hear a lot from Gensler. Well, I only follow the laws, I don't write them, right? Well, if that's true, and that's what's holding you back from protecting household investors and entrepreneurs, the people for whom capital markets were the, were invented in the first place, right? Why don't you take that 10 minute walk and go down there and talk to Congress and put together a plan for what you need to be able to do this job more effectively rather than, you know, it's <laughs> we call it bubblegum and bailing wire. Like they just keep trying to, you know, rig up, rig together, hold together this machine that's breaking down with bubble gum and those, you know, like they stick the uh, piece of bubble gum on the, when the dam gets a leak in it and somebody puts a piece of bubble gum on it and then they get another leak and another leak. That's, they're like running around here patching these leaks up. If that is in fact a problem, then, then they, then they should be talking to Congress and not just using that as an excuse. The laws don't let me do this. The laws don't let me do that. I do follow the SROs more closely, and I think that, um, and this is probably true for the SEC as well, um, like the NSCC making exceptions to, you know, not ejecting brokers and waiving fines and waiving margin calls. There, there's, there's one lawsuit, which I haven't had a chance to look into, that I found out about recently where NSCC did attempt to throw out a broker I don't know if it was for FTDs or not, but they did try to throw them out and the broker took them to court because there is an appeals process written into the law that created, you know, these uh, self-regulatory organizations. I mean, if you think about the SEC, well, let me just finish that thought. So, so they've been taken to court. The problem is every time they make an exception, every time they don't enforce a rule that they have, every time they, you know, waive margin calls, whatever, that's going to be held against them in a lawsuit, right? Because you say, well, you didn't do that to Robin Hood. You didn't do that to Citadel. Why'd you do that to me, right? Yeah. So it's the same thing with yeah. the SEC has the same problem where at some point it becomes impossible for them even to enforce their own rules because they've made too many exceptions. Just then in general about the Securities and Exchange Commission, like they, like so much of the regulations that we have, were were born of a crisis, right? So that's like in their DNA. So the Securities and Exchange Act of 1933 was written against the backdrop of the uh, Wall Street crash of 1929 and the Great Depression followed. The um, central system that we have for clearing settlement, born out of the paperwork crisis of the 1960s. Um, Dodd-Frank, which was supposed to, well, Dodd-Frank didn't actually do anything. It just 
told a bunch of SROs to go do a study and write some more rules, right, of their own rules. But but that was born, that came out of the great financial crisis of 2008. So just every time we have a crisis, we just get a whole new set of these rules and laws and regulations poured on top of the last set. So even what, what SEC did with Reg Show, the amendments were three times the number of pages as the original Reg Show rule. <laughs> so now instead of it being like a like a 30 or 40 page rule, it's like a it's like now like a 900 page rule that refers back to a bunch of other rules, each of which is another hundred or thousand pages. So it becomes impossible for for anyone to follow. It's it's a sort of um, um, uh, what's the fellow's name that that does the um, the crazy machines, not Rubik, but um, yeah, the machines that Rubik. Um, yeah, I know the ones you mean. I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll see if I can find it while we're talking. As soon as we hang up, it'll come back. Country, but they built this this uh, root. Anyway, they built this machine that has become so complex that it's extremely difficult to um, uh, correct it. Someone, I heard someone on the news the other day said, um, you shouldn't need a lawyer to file your taxes. But you almost do, because they've allowed that process, the, all those rules and regulations from the Internal Revenue Service to become so complicated that you virtually, like you, it's so hard for individuals to file their own income taxes uh, because of the exceptions and the rules and the this and the that. So it's the same thing with the SEC. So. Are they powerless? No, but they often rubber stamp rules that the SROs write a rule and they just rubber stamp it. I posted an example on Twitter from uh, 2005. The, the, the rule from the New York Stock Exchange specifically said delete the word mandatory. And when the SEC announced the, the approval, they said we're approving a rule for mandatory buy-ins. So... <laughs> Like, did they even read it or did they simply rubber stamp it? And that's one example. And, and I think too often that happens. So are they powerless? No, I don't think they are. I think that they, um, you know, it, it could also come back to this. It's that, you know, revolving door that you talked about earlier. But it's also this incompetence, you know, hypothesis. <laughs> I put together there's a, there's a hypothesis that says that the economy goes into ruin, not because of any... Um, conspiracy by, you know, some forces or inside the government saying, but it's because they're incompetent, because they simply don't know. Like, if you look at the board of directors for the NYSE, for example, I think there's like one person with a financial background there, and all the rest of them are from just whatever. I don't know, they were with some charities, or they were with some, and <clears throat> all worked in some unrelated fields. And they're in charge of the New York Stock Exchange. They're on the board. They're on the for ICE, ICE. They're on the they're on the, the board of directors, board of advisors for that. So they're getting advice from probably. So who's telling them what to do, right? And more than likely, it's the people that they're supposed to be regulating. Yeah, almost definitely. Um, yeah. That's right. It was a Rube a Rube Goldberg machine. That's Rube what Goldberg. Yeah, that was it. Um, I keep saying when I hit Rube, and I was going for Rubik. So okay, yeah. So. so <laughs> So the SEC, like the IRS, has built this Rube Goldberg machine of uh, regulations that makes it really hard. And I've, I've been in this industry my entire career. I started insurance. I moved to banking. I went to the stock exchange. I got into clearing and settlement. I mean, that's all I've done. And sometimes I have a really hard time following the, the actual changes in the laws because they keep referring back to laws that they changed you know, six years ago. Or a law that was put into place 30 years ago. And so then you have to go back and read that one to see what that change would impact. Mm. So, right, let me, let me, the, when, when you're talking about this, like the, the constant referring back to, I'm getting like PTSD from my, from my law degree. Because oh. <laughs> um, uh, that's what it was like. It'd be like, oh, it refers to this piece of legislation. You go, right, okay, find this piece of legislation. Be like, oh, you're referring back to this piece and be like, oh, okay, right, go find this piece of legislation. Yeah. Uh, which maybe works better for a legal system than it does a financial regulatory system. But um, yeah, one of the things that, that I've heard said, um, and if people listen to the previous episode of this, they will have heard Dave Lahr presenting a defense of this, um, saying that once you start to like try to fix the system as it is, 
that like you can go in and go okay we were just we're going to try and like scrap this rule and this rule and this rule and then try and simplify it and as soon as you start like pulling at a thread then you suddenly realize just how interconnected and interwoven and you suddenly realize that everything is like so ridiculously entangled that it's almost like it's almost seems like they're trying to say it's too broke to fix so we can't fix it <laughs> Um, yeah. So, yeah. do you think it would be like? Is there in like you, you know? Obviously, like you've said, you you've been in this industry your you, like your entire professional career. Yeah. Like, yeah. Is it, could you conceive in a a system or a way in which you could go in and just like wipe the slate, maybe not clean, but like just start right from the bottom and go, okay, we need to rebuild this thing from the ground up. Like, is that something that could even happen? Like, would that be too well, fundamental a change for the industry and the economy as a whole to handle? So, first of all, it's not impossible to make that kind of change. They did it in Russia. They did it in, in East Germany. They did it in Poland. I mean, those systems have gone from, look, but in Russia, they went from capitalism to communism and back to capitalism in the course of, you know, 75 years. So it's not impossible to make that change. Um, it is <clears throat> this idea that, uh, you know, pulling at threads, I think that is not a defense of the existing, you know, that's not a defense of not making changes. I think that in fact is the reason that you have to make changes. I outlined, um, I think five steps, Let's see if I can bring that up here. I outlined uh, five. I had initially did maybe four, um, and then we kind of added another one. But I think it's actually pinned on. I don't have my phone in front of me because I try not to have distractions on here. It's I think it's actually pinned on my on my Twitter feed. Yeah, it's yeah. about the um, settlement discipline regime for the USA. Yeah. How did it, how, sorry, do you want me to read it out or I can bring it up and um, for people um, here? here. And so, I, so I have it, right? So number one, prevent the... Um, so number one is fines for settlement without waivers, without margin calls. The margin call is the only thing right now that has any teeth in it, okay? And that's the piece that gets... Um, you can bring it up on... <clears throat> It's it's on the it's pinned on my Twitter page if you want yeah, to share I'm, that. yeah I'm sharing it with people right now actually here okay. like watching it I've got it on screen for them so 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 it has um, so there should not be it just shouldn't be allowed right so you've got to stop that to me that's the number one thing that has to be done and that's not that hard to do there are countries that do not allow it part uh you know so the I think that the fines have to be bigger. Right now, the, the fees that NSCC applies are like, it's like $2.50 plus, you know, you know, 1% of the value of the position overnight or something. It's minor, really minor, right? Um, the, the margin call is their big thing. And the margin call, they're calling it a margin call. I wouldn't specifically call it that because I think that that gives an impression. I think that gives an incorrect impression. What they're doing is the NSCC has a <clears throat> has a clearing fund that if a broker goes under, they can go to that clearing fund to get the money they need to uh, make whole all the counterparties. So when they say margin call, what they're saying is that you have to put more money into that fund. And as soon as you clear up your fails, we'll give the money back to you. Yeah. And that's really not much of a disincentive, right? So, so the first thing is to do that is to, is to really make it like no waivers, no exceptions. If you fail to deliver securities, it has to cost, there has to be a real cost associated with it. And that's, that's sort of part four, which is they have to kick them, kick people out who continue to do this. If they do it more than once, they've got to be kicked out. There are not enough, you know, sort of serious penalties against the violators. Then the other thing is this mandatory buy-in. So if you do fail to deliver, then you have the 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 
the central system. You don't have to wait for the buyer or the, the yeah for the buyer to to say, oh yeah, I'll take it. Like right now, it's voluntary. So you fail to deliver to me, I fail to receive. I don't press the claim against you for a buy-in because when next time I fail to deliver, I don't want you to press it against me, right? So, so it has to be made mandatory where the central system is the one that actually executes it. <clears throat> and one of the one of the you know these unintended consequences, I think, is so what you were talking about earlier. Like if you start pulling at these threads, you get these unintended consequences. So if you change this rule you didn't realize it was going to affect something downstream from that. I don't think that that's, I don't think that the things that I'm proposing are not, are not of that nature. There, I don't see unintended consequences for these things. So the buy-in, a lot of times what would happen is when they did execute a buy-in, the buy-in trade would fail to deliver as well, right? So you have this sort of daisy chain, <laughs> daisy chain around Rob with the to deliver. Yeah. I felt you and you you demand a buy-in. So you go to execute the buy-in that fails to deliver. And then you go to execute another buy-in and this just goes on and on. So what happens is, and they, they do this, I think it's in Singapore where they have what they call a, um, uh, like a minimum bid. <clears throat> There's a minimum value above which the next bid uh, has to be done. So when so they use that, which is a fairly minor percentage of the cost of the shares. If I offer you a dollar, right, I offer to buy these shares for a dollar and I don't get any takers. Tomorrow I offer a dollar ten and I don't get any takers. Then I say I offer a dollar twenty or a dollar thirty-two, like to us, so I add this 10% as you're going along or five percent, whatever it is. You keep raising the bid until you find someone who says, hey, at that price, <laughs> I'll take it, right? Yeah. And someone who's willing to sell. The that that has to be, if that's not done, you know, then what's the point, right? Then what's the point? You don't have it's not a market. If you can't do that most fundamental piece. All I'm trying to do there with those those four steps is to make this an actual market. And I don't see how that that's going to unravel all of the little rules about um, upticks and you know market makers and so on. They can have all that they want, but when it comes time for settlement, I want what I pay for. That's that's these are not these are not um, these are not rocket science fixes. Uh, the EU got it in 2014. Parliament passed it in 2014, and then all and then the, the hell that broke loose was not in the markets. The hell that broke loose was among the banks and the brokers, who then ran to to the Parliament and said, "Oh my gosh, the sky's falling down, and you have to take it out." And so they're trying to dismantle it. So this idea that there's going to be some you know cascading uh, you know falling apart event because you made these four changes. To, to make this an actual market for stocks, right? Yeah. Uh, I think it's facetious, really. Yeah, I mean, well, there's 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 some people who, and there's a part of me that has the the, the feeling that if you were to go in and, and turn everything into a totally transparent and fair system that um, perhaps quite a lot of the industry might not be able to continue to function in the way it currently does. Which yeah, this is not a bad thing at all, you know. What are you saying? Let's turn it into a totally transparent and fair market. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Wow. Right? I don't understand. Like that's so vague <laughs> as to be absurd. Honestly, I mean, let's let's take here's here's four simple steps that if I know that when I give a broker my money, I get the shares that I paid for then that's like what like the transparency we're looking for now is tell me tell me more about the fails to deliver tell me who failed to deliver tell me who sold short tell me who naked short okay so you get all that information that information just starts to piss you off more <laughs> I mean, it's not really <laughs> it. what fixes it is stop the fails to deliver now just to stop that you'll never have another naked short right yeah i mean that would be then, a start that would be a start. <laughs> that would be a very good start. 
Um, yes, market makers may no longer be able to do business the way they're doing it now. They would have to change the way they do business, which is to make an actual market where buyers and sellers come together and agree on a price, not where buyers just keep paying money and sellers don't give them anything. That's not a market. That's a scam. That's a scheme. That, that's not a market. So let a market maker make an actual market. Yeah. That's so important yeah i mean i i definitely agree i mean so th this this sort of brings us quite nicely to to because because the reason that we have this whole the system as it is is because everything seems to be geared towards i think as i put it in the, the email i sent you like worshiping at the altar of infinite liquidity, oh, liquidity. <laughs> which and that's and, and from everything i've read um about the way people talk and, and listen to and watched about the way people talk about the market is just like everything li liquidity is above everything else it's like if you went into like the most um like religious like Republican conservative, like household who was a financier, you'd go in and it would be like liquidity, God, family. <laughs> like, like, and, then, and then the rifle. The rifle yeah, and then the, yeah, yeah, guns. guns yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, that's what it seems to be. When, whenever, whenever they talk about it, I get this feeling and like, could, could you, is, is there a reason that they all love uh, this? this idea so much like what is it about liquidity and infinite liquidity that that they they fetishize so much so that's a question for the people who are worshiping liquidity <laughs> which i don't do so why do they do that i don't know like people do a lot of stuff that i don't get i and i i say sometimes sometimes people think in the wrong way i'm not that kind of a doctor if you really <laughs> want to know why people worship liquidity you need to ask a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Like I, I'm, a, I'm a doctor of money, not a doctor of people's brains. <laughs> so, although I have thought that I should study a little more psychology to try to figure out why people behave they do, because to me it's baffling. So tell me, you, so you, you apparently, you know, read a lot about this liquidity. You've talked to people who talk about liquidity. What is liquidity? Uh, to me, it seems like it's, essentially regardless of the market or the stock that it, there it is always available to buy or sell that the the regardless of the commodity or or um thing that you're trying to buy that, that there is always something available for you to buy or sell that seems like what it is okay so that's 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 supply and demand mm. right that's about production that's not really in finance liquidity Okay. is how fast can I turn this asset into cash? Okay. So cash is the most liquid of all assets. Then comes checks, because I take it to the bank. Then comes, I don't know, like uh, the, the cash I have in my checking account is very liquid. I can just take that out whenever I want. The cash in my home, right? My If, I, if I'm a homeowner, uh, that that's an illiquid asset because I have to, you know, put out an advertisement, uh, you know, find out the market to get somebody to give me a valuation. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. And, the, and in the States, it has, um, uh, you can close really fast, but most uh, sellers are going to take like 30 days to at least. And that's from the time you have an agreement that, yes, we agreed on the price. Then take like 30. So that's illiquid, right? Because it takes a long time to do. So if I buy shares of, GME or AMC, everybody's two favorite stocks. And it takes 31 or 40 or 50 days for me to get my shares. Is that liquidity? No, no, that's not, that's not liquid. That's an ill that makes that's turned what should be a fit like T plus. So when I, when I first started in the industry, it was T plus. Uh, well, I think it was T plus five when I got to New York, but I think it was T plus 10 before that. So, you know, like basically a fortnight. Okay. That's what you had in the UK. You had a fortnight to settle a trade. And then they keep chopping it down, chopping it down. So T plus two, meaning this should be as liquid as a check, right? If I write you a check today and you take it to your bank tomorrow, of course, <laughs> in the States, the bank's going to hold it for 10 days. But here or there, let's say I take it to the bank tomorrow and I get cash for it. That's, so that's a that's a T plus one, right? You give, I give you the goods. You give me the check. 
take it to the bank tomorrow, I get my money, it's T plus one settlement, mm -hmm. right? So T plus two settlement means that that stock should be fairly liquid. I should be able to buy and sell that, you know, fairly easily. That's liquidity, right? Yeah. Liquidity yeah. isn't just that every time I want to buy something, you pretend to give me one. Yeah. It's not liquidity. Mm -hmm. That in fact is turning, allowing fails to deliver, just as a bottom line, is turning what should be a fairly liquid asset into an illiquid asset. It takes it could take almost as long to sell a house as it does to get delivery of a share of AMC. <laughs> That's so it's so crazy when you put it like that right? though. It's just it's just simple. It's not complicated. Yeah. I think that one of the problems with this like you know infinite liquidity because it sounds uh, you know, fancy. I worked with Mike Milken for a while and he used to say that complexity is not innovation. Mm. So just to make it sound complex, it's infinite liquidity, it's this fancy, it's a market maker that's undefined in law. Like that, that's not, that's not a, an innovative way to explain it. I'm, a, I'm sort of a math nerd. And to me, the most, the thing I like most about math is that you can have a very simple, elegant solution for an apparently complex problem, mm. right? And that, but that takes time, yes. energy, thought, discussion, right? Research, real research, reading mountains of papers written by other people to try to synthesize ideas. You can just, you know, just to throw out, oh, we need the liquidity. Oh, we, that's why we have to have this. To me, that's, that's just not, that's not helpful in mm. any way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and and you get to write QED at the end whenever you come up with your little elegant solution. Oh, I, I, I never did, but yes, I, I've seen that. That's like so. There are people who are um, were good students because they were able to sort of regurgitate what other people said, <clears throat> you know, and come to their QED. I was never that kind of student. <laughs> Um, fortunately for me, when I was studying economics, most of the economics I studied was, was written by guys. And so I could say, well, some guy or this fellow, right. And, and cause I couldn't remember their names. I knew what they wrote. Um, so I was never, I'm just never really good at memorizing and regurgitating, right. I was always good at figuring things out. Mm. And so when you can figure things out and put it into really simple language that someone who is not familiar with the topic can understand, it's hard, right? Yeah. I, I, I had a client who said to me, can you tell, can you explain it to me in 500 words or less? I said, well, I need like three months and 10 grand. <laughs> if you want this tomorrow, it's just going to be complicated and long, right? It's, that was, that was, uh, uh, Pascal said that, um, you know, this letter would have been shorter, but I ran out of time. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't have the time to cut through, edit it down, but it does take time to do that. And so you have to have the experience, and the knowledge to be able to do that. So that's why I asked you the question, what do you think is liquidity? Mm. And what you explained to me, that's not liquidity. Yeah. Just making sure that, you know, that there every buyer has a seller, a seller has a buyer. That's, you know, if if you have an actual thing there, right? Yeah. If I give you my money and you give me my shares in two days, that's fairly liquid, right? If I give you my money and you take how long was AMC on the right on the threshold list? Oh, like months and months I mean, and months and months. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's the same trade, but there are some shares that went undelivered for a really long time. I, how many houses could how many houses could I have flipped in a period of time? Ask yourself that question, and that tells you what that does for liquidity. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I guess when when I said that like something is it like that you can buy it, I guess I was I was like thinking that you get a thing that says you have the share, you know. That that's that's what they're attempting to provide you whereas like the you can see with the, the ftds that they're not actually being delivered so that that like that they're in pursuit of of the illusion that there's always something to buy or sell i think it's probably a better way of of explaining it's an infinite illusion of yeah. liquidity yeah literally oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so um yeah, which kind of then 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 brings me to to one of the other things I want to ask you about, which is is basically like how, aside from from the things that you've laid out, why is it you think that that we accept the self-regulatory aspect and the sort of like 
very lax way of regulating the system because um i don't know what it is in america but it's got to be about 20 percent of gdp um let me find it's out. in finance yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the financial services make a major contribution to GDP. Yeah, yeah. and and that's but remember, we just people keep throwing be... more stuff in there and more stuff in there, more stuff in there. Just like the so this thing in France that you talked about, where they were protesting that that the government was going to put BlackRock in charge of the pension funds or something. Yeah. Uh, George uh, George the Second, so George W. Bush in the U.S. Uh, tried King George. I was like, oh, no, this, no, is, no. this is a bit bad. Like, <laughs> I call him George the second, but yes, but I, then I realized, oh, wait, I'm talking to someone from the kingdom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, That's long before yeah, George the second's long before your country existed. <laughs> you know, right? So, George W. Bush had this idea that he was going to take um, uh, all of the um, um, social security money and have it managed by Wall Street, yeah, like that. So, you know, it didn't get done, thank God. But, but the, you know, Wall Street sort of drools over that. You know, like there's so much money in there and people every day, mandatory, it's mandatory that, the, that they, their, your employer takes the money out of your check and sends it to the government, right? And, the, and then Congress sees that as this low hanging fruit as a place that, um, as a place that they are able to uh, um, you know, cut back on costs, you know, reduce the, yeah, finance, insurance, real estate, retail only. So, so this is rentals. Housing. This is a really big category. This isn't just Wall Street, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got rental housing, although that's a topic for another day, uh, how, uh, the, you know, the, the, the home wreckers, how finance, Wall Street is really trying to get into housing in the U.S. It's, it's tragic. Anyway, um, but this is this broad category of what we call FIRE, finance, insurance, real estate, right? And then housing is in there too. So, but it is a big part of the economy. And I'm sorry, but I actually forgot what your question was. <laughs> Basically, how we ended up at this this uh, place where where such so yes, self regulation is accepted. So right, uh, New York University economist Thomas Philippon says that. It's about nine percent if you exclude the the real estate sector of that. Okay. So so okay. it's yeah, it's ten percent of, of the of, of the GDP. Of the economy. Of, yeah. Exactly. And, and no so one I think seems only to care. government. I think the government is a big is the only thing that's a bigger portion of it, um, and maybe healthcare. Mm. So that, in fact, that statistic is an excuse that Washington and Wall Street use to maintain the suicide pact that they're in with self regulation. Oh, it's it's twenty percent of the economy. We can't like if we if we upset Wall Street, the whole thing will fall apart and the economy will crash and yada yada blah blah blah. Well, what they're missing is that once we hit this level three of the crisis, the you know the the citizens are going to find their pitchfork moment, and they don't care that Washington and Wall Street have this idea that self-regulation works for them. How did we get there? We go back to the beginning. So there's a <clears throat> stock market crash. And so people in Washington go, oh my gosh, what happened? It was something on Wall Street. Let's go talk to Wall Street. So what do you think we should do? And Wall Street goes, huh, you're asking me what you should do about the mess that I just made? Huh, like never, there's this political thing you hear all the time, never, let, never waste a good crisis. Like every time there's a crisis, some politician is going to stand up and say, you know, you know, I'm the hero. I'm going to fix it. Wall Street, I think, just saw this as each of these crises is just one more opportunity for Wall Street to benefit itself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, the mm -hmm. housing market crashed during, well, not crashed, but sort of went down during, well, 2008, oh, the financial good. industry used it to buy up a bunch of housing, and then the COVID like dip, they used it to buy up uh, buy up a bunch of whole more. Um, right, and they turned whole neighborhoods in Arizona into rentals. Yeah, whole neighborhoods. Or, they or just bought all at, the houses. Yeah, look at fucking um, Maui at the minute. They're the yeah. they're, the people are in trying to buy up the land at, at a fraction of the cost, but with days yeah. after hours after the you know it's burned to the ground. Hours, yeah, exactly, exactly, it's yeah. Awful. Um, 
We've been at this just like an hour now, so yeah. Can so we do proxy plumbing, and then yeah. So yeah, let's just do proxy plumbing, and then we can wrap it up. I yeah. know you wanted to ask about that. You need you need some clarification, and probably other people do too. I've been talking about it for a long time. So remember how I say that I'm a plumber? We're the plumbers of Wall Street. When I worked at DTC, they called us the plumbers of Wall Street, right? And no one cares what the plumber has to say until the shit backs up in the living room. So uh, the the plumber on Wall Street is everything that happens after the trade. The trade is just, um, oh, uh, so many shares, like the, there's elements to a trade. How many shares of what stock, at what price, the finish on what day, where do we settle? Like this, there's all these elements that go into it, all these agreements. Um, and, and most trades now are what they call pre-cleared so that the brokers work out any differences. Like, Oh, I thought you said a dollar ten. No, I said a dollar one. You know, so that's like, well, it's worked out. And then everything after that is the the Wall Street plumbing. That's trade clearing, settlement, everything after that. Okay. Proxy plumbing is everything that happens before the votes go to the company. Okay. Before the votes go to the company, so that's the plumbing. Um, if the broker fails to receive shares at settlement then they don't have a share to vote and too often they don't keep track of who they shouldn't send proxy voting material to and so they just send it out to everybody on their list mm. and the issuer has to pay for that right so a company like broadridge who's one of the service providers probably the biggest one that i know of gets information from DTC that says Goldman Sachs has 10 million shares of AMC. And and so so Broadridge then goes to Goldman Sachs and they go, what are the names and addresses of the to, uh, of the people holding the 10 million shares? We'd like to send them a proxy voting material or tell us that that they that they don't want to be identified, right? That's what they call it, an objecting owner, objecting beneficial owner. So then Goldman Sachs sends up everything. So they go to their AMC and they say, here's everybody, right? And let's just put aside anybody who objects and say, here's everybody who holds it. Broadridge then, because Goldman Sachs paid them a fee, looks at it and they go, wait a minute, there's, um, you sent me the, the total of his shares in these accounts equals 11 million. So you have a million too many here. They send that message back to Goldman and Goldman then fixes it in a completely opaque process. Uh, with no rules, no, I can't tell you how long we've been fighting to have that, the rule, some sort of guidance in place for that. But they can just, now let's say it's an important vote. It's something that ben, Goldman benefits from a yes, whereas household investors benefit from a no. Goldman now has a million shares that um they don't have to listen to whatever household investors told them they just drop those million and send in the ones the 10 million that voted yes and they drop the million that voted no for example so so that's part of this plumbing this is why this you know you could take all the the felt deliver numbers that are published by the sec multiply it by two and that's how many shares are sort of missing in action right <clears throat> so um so the same thing happens with stock loan. When in in a, in a, if the broker fails to receive shares, they have no vote, zero vote, because they don't have shares, they don't have a vote. All they have is an IOU for the share. Um, and this is really this is really called contractual settlement date accounting, which allows them to put the IOU into the household investor's account because they've already taken the cash settlement date accounting. They've already taken the cash out of their account. In a stock loan, the vote goes to the borrower. So whatever share, whatever share pool, the, and anybody with a margin account has already agreed that the broker can lend your shares out, not tell you about it, not share the money with you, not share the profits with you. Those shares also have no votes. So again, they're going to say, um, you know, uh, DTC is going to say you have, you know, 10 million shares in your account. And not only do you have, you know, 11 million that are 
uh, in your, your household investor accounts, but you have another million or so that you've, you know you've linked out. So you don't have votes for those. Now, those 2 million shares, you've got to get rid of those votes because they're not going to be there. So, and this is only if you're going through like DTC, through the centralized system. If the broker, you know, processed that trade against the house account. So if you ask your broker to buy some shares for you, they can, under certain circumstances, sell it to you from their own accounts, from their, you know, Sutherland house. We have no idea what happens there. But this is about that. So the proxy plumbing is all this stuff that goes on uh, in between there, in, in between the time that the company calls for a vote and the time that the votes are actually sent to the um, issuer. That's the plumbing. And that plumbing has been broken for a really long time. I mean, this was, this was the 1993 when the transfer agents registrars came to me and they said, there's a problem. Yeah. Because the, the short sales and the stock lending were getting too many votes turned in. So did someone say, oh, well, let's figure out who, who should have the vote and make sure that they get a vote and don't let people vote who shouldn't, right? Let's let's figure it out. They said, what well, they said was no. Broadridge, they were ADP at the time, Broadridge said, and they says, I'll tell you what, for a fee, I'll tell you when you've turned in too many votes. And then you could just fix it and send it back to me. And and I don't, you don't have to tell me how you did it. I don't want to see. I don't hear. <laughs> don't tell me how you did it. Yeah. Just fix it and send it back to me. So that's the plumbing. That's the problem. And there are no new rules on the, on the even in the long-term agenda for the SEC. Hmm. This has been pushed back from 2010 when Congress sent letters to the SEC and and all, you know, multiple requests for them to please, you've got to fix this. And here we are 13 years later, and it's still not on the agenda. And it was on, it was on the short term agenda for a little while, and then they just pushed it back. Right. So, you know, so when, so when Genser posts something like, you know, this is going to, we're going to change these rules so that um, uh, household investors can now have an easier time getting a proposal, proposal on the agenda for an annual meeting of a public company. So what? If I can't vote on it, what difference does it make? If my votes are my votes are tossed out, uh, uh, Broadridge tossed out seven billion sh uh, votes, seven billion votes just what? through this process in 2022. Yeah, seven billion. They had a little disclosure. They they don't do it every year, but one year was because they want to brag about how how well this service works. We have a service where if you give us too many votes, we won't tell the company. We'll tell you so you can fix it and just send us the number of votes you're supposed to have, right? So they wanted to brag about how well that works. And so they showed the difference between the number of votes they processed before that fee, you know, service fee, that fee for service went in, uh, and how many after. It was a difference of 7 billion votes. Now, I guarantee you those were not institutional investor votes. Those were not broker-dealer votes because those people know if their votes have gone in or not. They know if they don't have shares in their account. Who doesn't know? Household investors don't know. So the votes, the 7 billion votes, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. And that was just for what was processed by Broadridge. Yeah. That's and, that, and they're not the only one that, that has this whole service. They're the biggest in the U.S., but that's a lot of votes to get tossed out just in one, one election cycle, right? One annual meeting cycle. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's start, it's starting to make sense as to why so many companies um, end up with like 100% of the shares voting in, in right. things. It's just, it's just like a little like, like moment for me there yeah so as the institutional investor voting participation rose the household investor voting participation fell mm. and that right there tells you what's going on who's getting tagged with the we didn't have a share for you so i can't count your vote because you won't know yeah right so you'll still get price material that the issuer paid for but i don't count your vote when it comes in because you know I had a little too many, <laughs> a little too many uh, votes, more votes and shares. Oh, it's a dirty world. 
So that's the plumbing. That's what's going on in the plumbing. Yes, it's a very dirty world. It's the sewers. It's the sewers of, yeah. of annual meetings, company annual meetings. <laughs> and so the companies don't know, they used to find out. And then the service went in where, you know, the processor says, pay me a fee, dear broker, and I won't tell the company that you've got more votes than shares. Oh, wow. Handy little service for them, isn't it? Yeah, very uh, nice. <laughs> Anyway, um, I'm aware that we've run over time. So um, I really want to thank you again for your time. You, you've cleared up, as usual, many, many things for me. Um, and I will put links for the stuff we discussed and for your, uh, the link to your book, uh, Naked, Short and Greedy, for people if they are stupid enough and crazy enough not yet to have read it. Um, comes highly recommended. Uh, my, my copy is somewhere behind me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know which. No, maybe it's out in the living room. Uh, <laughs> several bookshelves all run. It's actually being read, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, um, and, and you can also post to that uh, that blog that kind of covers this regulatory crisis stuff too. That might just, for some people, it's easier to read it than to listen. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll link that as well. So, yeah. Um, and I also have to say I get lots of requests to be on podcasts with lots of people. And I, it's such a pleasure to talk with you that I'm always happy to come back on. So I want to be in that five-time club and get the mug. So We'll get you there and I will get you the mug. Okay. Well, I'll make okay. sure by the time we've done the fifth one that I have the mugs. Okay. Promise. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. Um, well, yeah. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.